Welcome to Pet Panorama with your host, Dr. Julie Mayer. Your pet is often referred to as your best friend, yet when it comes to their health care, sometimes we don't understand all of the options that are available to keep them healthy and living a good quality life as long as possible. In our program, we will explain and explore the best care possible, and we invite your participation as well. Now, here is Dr. Julie Mayer. Welcome, 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 all you pet lovers. Uh, I hope you're having a nice, hot Arizona day. Um, we we got a real good pack schedule today. We're going to talk about vaccines, so my favorite hot topic for a hot day. Um, so I'm going to dive right in, and um, I encourage you to, uh, beyond our conversation today, I encourage you to um, seek information from Dr. Jean Dodds. Uh, she's a great colleague of mine, a good friend, and very knowledgeable on vaccines. She's been doing a lot of research on vaccines, and she has good protocols, up-to-date protocols that are out there on her websites. She is also the founder of Hemopet, which is a laboratory in um, California, and uh, actually all over the world. She has many laboratories. So her knowledge is um, amazing and fantastic. And um, also is Ron Schultz, who is a professor at uh, the University of Wisconsin, the vet school over there. So he is a great immunologist, and this is where I get a lot of my information because these two are um, very dedicated, devoted, and they do a lot of research themselves, and they want to seek the best methods and protocols for our pets. So we're going to dive right into vaccines. Um, So again, this is a real good session to uh, pay attention to. And uh, because we want you to have the best information um, so that you can get make the best choices for your pets. So what is a vaccine? Um, it's, it, it can be confusing. Uh, we all get vaccines, but do we really know what, you know, what does a vaccine do? So a vaccine is a substance used to stimulate the production of antibodies and provide immunity against one or several diseases. It's prepared from uh, the causative agent of a disease, its products or synthetic substitutes. So parts of the um, organism will usually be, um, you know, made up inside this, these vaccines. And, and now they're starting to um, uh, make some synthetic substitutes as well. It is treated to act as an antigen without inducing the disease. It does cause the immune system to develop the same response as it does to a real infection so the body can recognize and fight the vaccine-preventable disease in the future. It helps prevent infection or decrease the severity of disease. In the purpose of the vaccines, it's it's a very crucial part of preventative health care offered to veterinary patients, of course, you know, humans as well, and can benefit dogs by lessening the morbidity and mortality associated with the infectious agents the vaccines were designed to prevent. Vaccines for dogs can also impact human health as many of the infectious agents for which canine vaccines are available 
um, are also here for us. So some of these diseases, for example, rabies, and it's not just canines, it's also, um, f- you know, especially outdoor cats, the felines as well. Um, these um, zoonotic diseases is what we call it in, in uh, veterinary medicine, which means that you can catch a disease from a dog or a cat. And of course, the big life-threatening one is rabies. So definitely can impact their vaccination status can impact our health as well. Notable examples, of course, include rabies, but there's leptospirosis, and Arizona has been introduced, unfortunately, to some cases of leptospirosis, and um, the Lyme, all right? So we can get Lyme uh, disease, and so can dogs. While vaccine-associated side effects can occur, side effects are much less common than the infectious disease the vaccines were developed to prevent. So we're trying to prevent disease, but we're also trying to kind of dampen the disease as well. So you may get a mild form of the disease after being vaccinated, and that's kind of similar to um, the flu shot in humans. So some people who get the flu shot will also experience, um, for a short period of time, maybe some symptoms of the flu. Um, But the whole purpose of the vaccine is if you got exposed to the flu, A, you wouldn't catch the flu, or B, it would just be a lesser degree of the flu. So who regulates these vaccines? Of course, everything needs to be regulated because... All this research, um, go, you know, is behind these vaccines, how to develop them, how to make them, how to store them, how to manufacture them, etc. And then who regulates the vaccines are the Center for Veterinary Biologics, which is the CVB, in the Animal and Plant Health Inspection Services, which is APHIS. And that APHIS is a branch of the United States Department of Agriculture, which is the USDA. Human vaccines are regulated by the Food and Drug administration. So totally two separate organizations. So what is the the right way to use vaccines? Um, There's a lot of there's a lot of different ways, believe it or not, to use vaccines, but we want to discuss the science and we want to discuss the right way to use vaccines. So the vets should aim to vaccinate every animal, if appropriate, with core vaccines. And core vaccines are basically like rabies, distemper, parvovirus, hepatitis, parainfluenza, okay? They should, vac- the, they should, meaning the vet should vaccinate each individual less frequently by only giving non-core vaccines that are necessary for the animal. I'm going to get into the non-core in a minute. Everybody needs to review the lifestyle of the pet. So the owner needs to share where they go, what they do with the pet. The, the veterinarian needs to discuss um, what they do with the pet, where they go with the pet, do they travel with the pet, etc. So it's very, very important that there is conversation about this because we need to know what are the core vaccines and what are the non-core vaccines, what are the exposure to other diseases. We got to look at local epidemics. So, um, for example, again, leptospirosis. Um, I've been here many years. Well, not a lot of years, but enough years. And I've seen uh, lepto. I actually had to do rehabilitation on a lepto positive patient back in the Midwest. And I've never seen any any lepto cases until hearing what my colleagues were dealing with um, just in the recent past. 
Um, we have to review the risk of exposure, the lifestyle, underlying medical conditions, so pre-medical conditions there, and manufacturer's recommendations. So we have to look at a lot of different things. We can't just blindly vaccinate every single pet on a calendar and, you know, just you have to look at their individual lifestyles, which may change from year to year. So it's very important that conversations do occur. According to the AVMA, the vets need to vaccinate as a medical procedure, okay, a medical procedure to be performed only after careful assessment of the needs of the patient rather than as an automatic act dictated by the calendar. So this is from the AVMA. That is our main association that everybody looks for, for research, for guidance, and for standard of care. And they are saying that we need to talk to the people, we need to make sure that we look at the needs of the patient rather than an automatic act dictated by the calendar. So people aren't making this up, the associations are making up these rules. According to the AVMA, they want the veterinarians to encourage single-dose vaccines and use of nasal and topical vaccines. So it's very, very interesting because, as we all know, when you go in, and even when children go in, they may get five vaccines in one visit, and dogs and cats may get five vaccines in one visit. So this is right out of the literature of the AVMA. So it's very, very interesting how the culture of veterinary medicine, how, how the standards of practice can stray away from what our major organization is that we follow and we respect. So it's very, very interesting how things can go astray. What are some of the side effects of vaccines? And there's more than I could put down on these pieces of paper. Um, and other clinicians will, you know, they would share their experiences as, as well. But here are some basic ones. Vaccine side effects commonly happen. That What we would see would be a local swelling, discomfort at the vaccine site, a mild fever, lethargy, decreased appetite. Then more serious could be um, side effects include persistent vomiting and diarrhea, itchy and bumpy skin um, hives. You may see these welts on the on the skin, facial swelling, severe difficulty breathing and collapse. Okay, obviously that's pretty severe. Injection site sarcomas, and I can share a story with you in a moment, a personal story. They're considered to be a rare development, okay? Reports do indicate that they occur at a rate of one, about one case per 10,000 to 30,000 vaccinations. These are for the injection site sarcomas. It is important to remember that all vaccines carry some. All vaccines carry some risk, and no vaccine is 100% safe. That's like we see people that may just acutely die from taking an aspirin. You think an aspirin is benign, it's sold over the counter. The same goes with vaccines. We don't know what that body, how that body is going to be affected by the vaccine. So um, let me go into a, um, the injection site sarcomas. This, we do see this commonly in felines. Um, so when cats do get a rabies shot or a feline leukemia shot, for example, 
feline leukemia is a virus that is very contagious and very can be very deadly in the cat world. Um, so at the site of injection, they may have a reaction that turns into a sarcoma. And I actually experienced this in my own world. And what is amazing is the this scenario of event events. So I'm going to try to make this short and sweet. I was in vet school and we had to do overnights. Um, you know, you go to class all day till five o'clock, you get to go home, six o'clock, go eat, come back, and you have to stay overnight in the um, ICU and you have to monitor the patient. So one of my friends got me a kitten. I, of course, vaccinated her with, you know, what all the protocols were that we learned in vet school. And um, she came with me for, and of course, I vaccinated her because I'm treating sick patients. Um, And she came uh, with me for just some uh, staying up support, okay, trying to trying to uh, not fall asleep, so to speak. So um, when I got out of vet school, so I was about junior, senior, being a vet, uh, a vet student. When I got out of vet school, I never vaccinated her. Um, she was an indoor cat. She never went outside. And um, 10 years later, um, I f- was palpating her and saw that she was a little sore right between her shoulder blades. And she started to create this firm mound right between the shoulder blades. It was sore. It was hot. And I didn't, I was like, what happened? Did she fall? She, she doesn't go outside. There was nothing going on inside the house. So I took an x-ray and she actually had a fracture of one of her vertebrae. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's a huge injury. And I don't know how this could happen because I, there was no problems at home. So this mask around the fracture continued to grow It was firm, hot, and it was really getting painful. So the surgeons um, that I worked with, I asked them to do a biopsy, and it came back as a vaccine-induced sarcoma. And what's interesting is this was 10 years later. This was 10 years after I vaccinated this, this cat. And I did vaccinate in the scruff. That was very common for us to vaccinate in the scruff. You hold the cat by the scruff. A lot of times, you know, They're very uh, fractious and mean, so we do have to grab them and hold them, and it was very common practice to do so. So, unfortunately, I had to put her to sleep, and I did experience this vaccine-induced sarcoma. I was very shocked and surprised that it didn't show up until 10 years later, even after receiving no more vaccines. So what veterinary medicine, what what we are trained as um, practitioners to do is, well, we don't want these sarcomas in the back, right, because it gets to the vertebrae and they're extremely invasive. So we are instructed by um, research, the AVMA and guidelines and standards of practice then to um, put the shot in the thigh area, okay? And the reasoning to put the shot in the thigh area is because if a cat did get vaccine-induced sarcoma, then we were able to amputate the leg. Very interesting. So that um, normal standard of care continued on for quite many, many years. And now the most recent recommendation is to give rabies or uh, feline leukemia in the tail. So if the cat does 
acquire a sarcoma, a vaccine-induced sarcoma in the tail, we can amputate the tail. So me being the holistic vet, I always say, why can't we change the vaccine? Why, you know, it's very sad that we are moving it to different parts of the body. You know, we're going to move it to the ear next so we could just take the ear off. So it's very, very interesting. We're not changing the vaccine, but we're changing where we're going to put that vaccine so we can amputate that part of the body. So that's just kind of interesting. So let's talk about the uh, rabies vaccine. Um, what Rabies is the law. So everybody has to obey the law, the veterinarians, um, the, the, you know, the clients. Um, and what's interesting about the law is basically it's, it's based on the, the protocol will be based state by state. So that's where uh, things can get a little confusing, especially if you're traveling through different states. If you move to different states, you have to know what the recommendation is for the rabies in each of the states. And that's because it's going to be based on exposure. Okay, so how many, you know, the Center of Disease Control, the CDC, they look at um, how many people were infected every year, uh, what animals were carrying rabies, et cetera. So it's really, really important to pay attention to your state laws. So the standard of practice is controlled by legislation and not pure science. It's going to be controlled basically by legislation based on what is happening in the area and, you know, where rabies is and what kind of pets or, well, I should say, wild animals are carrying the rabies and obviously passing it along. So we're going to get into a little bit more details on the rabies um, right after the break. Back in a moment. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you ever have an off day? Or is your life positive and uplifting? Making Life Brighter is a forum for positive, inspired, and contemplative thought. Showcasing experts in their fields, including authors, musicians, and artists. Your host, Winifred Adams, will bring to life topics to stimulate and make your life brighter. We want to hear from you. Be sure to tune in Thursdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Addiction can affect our relationships, our families, our home, and work lives, but most importantly, ourselves. The recovery process can do wonders in the lives of people suffering from active addiction and also for those that love them. It's not just 12-step programs, but so much more. It's learning how to live life on life's terms. If you can relate to these issues or love someone who does, start with yourself. Start by tuning in to Miracles in Recovery with host Ray Lynch, Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Hope is in your corner. Do you find yourself caring for people in multiple generations? Are you exhausted, stressed, and overwhelmed? Instead of spending hours searching for resources and information, Dr. Merrill and her guests will provide you with practical, everyday information and solutions to help make your life easier. 
Tune in to Caught Between Generations, Thursdays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. are tuned in to Pet Panorama with Dr. Julie Mayer. We want to hear from you with your questions, stories, and comments. Please call into the program today at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Send your emails all week to Dr. Julie at petpanorama at gmail.com. That's petpanorama at gmail.com. Now, back to Pet Panorama. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, So just wrapping it up a little bit about the rabies vaccine. Um, The standard of practice is controlled by legislation and not just pure science. Because, again, it's going to be based on what's happening in um, each state, in the region, etc., as far as... um, uh, you know, what pets are, or what wild animals are found rabid, or what pets are getting infected, humans getting bit by bats or whatnot, etc. Um, and typically, um, across the board, though, the frequency of an injection is going to be either one or three years. Uh, here in Arizona, it is three years. And I just want to clarify, because a lot of people ask me this, they they don't like the three-year rab- rabies vaccine because it's it's you know it's too much, it's highly concentrated, it's too long acting. They're the same thing. Okay, the one-year rabies and the three-year rabies are basically the same thing. The labels are different, so you don't have to worry about that. You're giving you know an overdose or too much of the vaccine in a three-year vaccine. Okay, so uh, rest your minds on that. Um, and then, again, how often also to vaccinate the pet if they are greater than 12 months overdue varies by state. So here's something interesting, too, because you get these stray pets. You don't know if they just came you know, out of a home and they were just vaccinated yesterday or if they've been on the streets for three years. Um, so a lot of times these pets will just, if, if they end up at the, at the pound, they just have to do what they have to do. They're going to vaccinate them um, because we don't have a history on them. So some interesting things about vaccines, too, is, you know, my clients think that vaccines are like insurance. Um, Great, you know, my pet's vaccinated, so I'm good to go. I can have them, you know, playing around in a pile of parvo poop. No, that's not the case. There's a lot of factors going on when you give the vaccine. How is that immune system of the the receiver? You know, are they able to mount an immune system to the vaccine? Uh, There's a lot of different things to think about. How is the vaccine stored? Is the vaccine okay? How good is the vaccine, etc.? So we 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 can't say that if our pet is vaccinated that we 100% know that that pet is protected. That's where titers come in and I'm going to get into that because that is an excellent topic to talk about because we can use titers diagnostically which is science to see if the pet does need a vaccine or not. But here's something that happens, and it's called non-responders. There's a small percentage of dogs are genetically incapable of developing an immune response to parvo vaccine. 
one out of a thousand dogs, one out of a thousand dogs actually can have a genetic defect and they don't mount an immune response. So how do we know after your pet goes into the doctor and goes and gets that shot that you know that your dog is going to mount that immune response? Some things we really have to think about here, right? Um, Also distemper. Um, There's non-responders to the distemper vaccine, and this is estimated at one out of 5,000 dogs. These dogs are described, again, as non-responders. So it's hard to say their genetics sometimes don't let them uh, mount and look at, you know, these viruses. So it's something to think about, right? Another thing that we have to think about is the duration of immunity. So it's called DOI. DOIs conferred by infectious core vaccines is known to last for many years. Core vaccines, I'll get into that. Well, basically, core vaccines are parvo, distemper, uh, adenovirus, uh, hepatitis, parainfluenza. Okay, it's kind of that combo shot that you get when almost annually when you do go to the vets. All right, so that's kind of your core vaccines. Even if serum antibody levels are determined to be below protective levels, immunology, memory, T and B lymphocytes is likely to be sustained. So there's, we have to, we have to think about this. There are two arms to the immune system, all right? One is like your antibody arm and one is a cellular arm. We get to test, so those are called the titers. We get to test the antibodies, okay, that your pet has floating around. They're waiting for something to strike. They're waiting for that virus, that organism, that bacteria to strike, to come in, invade the body, and it's going to recognize it and attack it, okay? That's what we look at when we test for titers. But we can't measure this other cellular, T, these lymphocytes, okay? We can't measure this other side of this immunity, but it could be there. It could be activated, and there are some vaccines that have shown that it is activated. It does activate this other side, but we can't measure that. We can only measure the titers. So what I'm trying to get at here is even if you have negative titers to some of these vaccines after you do the blood test, there is a possibility that you could have cellular immunity. But it's hard for us to measure that in the veterinary office, okay? Some things to consider. The Center for Veterinary Biologics has not required manufacturers to conduct DOI studies, so duration of immunity, unless making a specific claim differing from one year. So pretty much everything except for, again, the rabies will say one year or three year, but every vaccine pretty much that's out there will say it just has a duration of one year. And most of the time, it's because the manufacturers just did the test for one year, all right? And that's where my lovely friend and uh, awesome practitioner, Dr. Jean Dodds, she is doing um, some the rabies challenge. She is looking at these dogs that are vaccinated, and she's testing them seven-plus years out. So we don't know. We don't know the longevity of these vaccines in these patients because – manufacturers typically just look at them for one year. And so they put that on the label. And so the veterinarians have to follow what's on the label. And they are 
recommending then that you come in every single year based on the manufacturer's recommendations because the manufacturers don't typically extend out their research. Very interesting. But that's where the titers come in. Okay? So... The vaccine failure also, all right, we have to think about these things. Again, it's not complete security and not, you know, we we can't say that just because your pet got vaccinated, if you threw it in a bunch of parvo puppy mess, that it's not going to get parvo, okay? Antibody tests are useful as a medical procedure to ensure the dog develops an immune response to the distemper and the parvo vaccines after the primary series of the vaccinations. Failure. The puppy has a sufficient amount of maternal-derived antibody to block the vaccine. This is where breeders are vaccinating very early, and what's going on is they're nursing. They have mom's antibodies floating around. So guess what? Mom's antibodies are going to attack and kill that vaccine that they're seeing, that part, the virus particles, okay? So there's a failure. You're going to have vaccine failure because the mom's antibodies can neutralize the vaccine. Another failure, the vaccine is not immunogenic. So it was properly stored and properly stored. These things have to be refrigerated. It's 100 and could become 115 out uh, in Arizona. They have to be on ice. And then when it gets to the uh, clinic, it has to be stored properly. So we don't know. Okay. Another failure, the dog is poor or non-responder. What we just talked about it. The immune system fails to recognize the antigenic determinants of the specific vaccine. Okay, but the most common reason for vaccination failure in young dogs is that mom's antibodies blocked the vaccine. And it's hard to measure mom's antibodies in the body of the puppy. So what we suggest is when you vaccinate the puppy, you can get titers and you could look inside that body. Okay, so let's talk about titers real quick. The, this is, a, it's really easy. It's a blood test. Um, and they're obviously useful to ensure that a dog responds to a specific core virus vaccine. So we're not just blindly injecting them every year with these combo vaccines. Okay, we're asking the body, do you need to be boosted? To determine if immunity is present in a previously vaccinated dog. So you're going to see, do they need the vaccine? And did the vaccine work? And that's what we do with puppies. It's used to determine the duration of immunity, right? And again, we only test the humoral branch of the immune system and not the cellular branch, okay? And distemper, typically parvo, um, those are the two, one of the, the two main core vaccines that we do want the pets to have, especially um, because we do have outbreaks of distemper and we do have outbreaks of parvo. So those are very common diseases. Dr. Dodds recommends perform vaccine antibody titers for distemper and parvo virus every three years, right, or more often if desired. So if you want to do minimal vaccines, you can get these titers done every three years and follow those results, those results can come in a yes or a no, or they can come in actual titers. You can see these numbers. So this is asking the body if it needs a booster or not. Okay. So 
again, pets that have been actively previously immunized by uh, by the vac- vaccination, that's we're asking it's science. So they're or they could be naturally immunized by an infection. So they had the disease. They could have an unknown vaccine history. We don't know. So you may want to just titer them to see. And unfortunately, it's costly. So if we get strays coming into the humane societies and such, we're not going to titer all of these pets. They're just going to give the vaccine because we have to think about cost, of course. Um, But again, we can have titers to these core vaccines to determine should we vaccinate these pets or not. So also, let's think about dosing, all right? Let's think about dosing. The vaccine dose is not based on size, which is body mass. It's not. There's small dogs require the same dose of vaccine as large large dogs. And this comes up a lot in conversation. I do see a lot of, um, well, both sizes, obviously, and it comes up a lot in conversation, you know, a Yorkie or a little Chihuahua that lay, weighs three pounds, um, they are receiving one cc typically. It's kind of standard one cc of the vaccine. And so is a Great Dane. So Dr. Jean Dodds, again, um, being the scientist that she is as well, um, she conducted a test. And it's a pilot study. It's called the Small Breed Half-Dose Vaccine Pilot Study. And I was able to participate in it. How cool is that? So I was, um, she had 13 small dogs and um, I believe it was three or four Yorkies from one of my clients. Um, I was able to uh, perform these duties that Dr. Jean Dodds was requesting and be part of the study. So it's very, very awesome, very interesting. So I'm going to read a little bit about her study. Um, And this is right from her literature. You can go to just Google Dr. Jean Dodds, and she's everywhere. And again, Hemopet is is her. um, uh, She has a laboratory that does, she'll test uh, chemistry, CBC. She does titers. She does thyroid. I mean, it's amazing. So you can go Google her, look her up, because she's out there. Um, And she has... Uh, been to Arizona, and um, she does do some lectures for, especially for breeders. So for decades, the human and animal immunological communities have asserted that vaccines are one size fits all. The premise is that even though patients are not the same, the immune system response is similar. While exceptions do exist in human vaccines, dosages basically come in two amounts, adult and pediatric. I, meaning her, Dr. Jean Dodds, have questioned the one-size-fits-all claim for years. And it's just been a norm. Again, it's just been our culture. The human population, of course, has much less variability in size compared to dogs. For instance, an eight-week-old you know, St. Bernard puppy will weigh approximately eight pounds and will grow to 160 pounds. An eight-week-old papillon will weigh two pounds and will grow to nine pounds, okay? Common sense begets that the papillon does not need the same vaccine dosage amount as a St. Bernard. Indeed, medications, heart prevent you know, preventatives, food, um, collars, dosage, ex- except for St. Bernard, you know, it's going to be a little bit different than the papillon. So why... Wouldn't we do this with the vaccines? Okay. So 
she posed that question and she turned it into her pilot study. So the vaccine products are stated to provide a sufficient excess of antigen for the average, average sized animal. So they are likely to be either too much for toy breeds or too little for giant breeds. Although the minimum immunizing dose doses have been established, the optimum dosage required for disease protection have yet to be determined. What we do know based upon nearly five decades of clinical research experience with vaccines in, co in companion animals, the dose of the distemper and the parvo vaccines can be reduced to 50%, but not more, for small breed and small mixed breed type dogs based upon their body weight and still convey full duration of immunity. So she's trying to prove this. This applies to puppies and older dogs of small breeds and breed types that weigh 12 pounds or less as adults. Serum vaccine antibody titers have also been performed three or more weeks after vaccination. As reported for dogs given a full dose of vaccine, greater than 95% of the dogs given a full or half dose mounted what is considered to be protective antibody titers to both canine distemper and parvo. So it's, it's fantastic. Now, again, this is a pilot study, and which just means it's, it's a beginning. There's only 13 dogs who were part of this study, and it just opens everybody's eyes to look at Let's do something big. Let's do a thousand dogs. Okay. So it's, uh, we need to start, we need to do this as veterinarians. We need to progress in science. We need to question some of the things that we did 50 years ago, right? And start looking at the benefits, right, of giving less vaccine as long as it's effective, meaning less amount, because there's preservatives. There may be some heavy metals in these vaccines, so we don't want to really overwhelm our patients, okay? We want to do no harm. So the purpose of the recent, uh, recently completed study was to document the serum antibody titer responses from administering a half dose of a bivalent distemper parvo vaccine to small breed adult dogs that had not been vaccinated in at least three years. So we're trying to get let's just say a virgin body, okay? So it doesn't have any vaccine in that body at all. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the rest of this pilot study as soon as we come back. So we'll be back in a moment. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Step by step, you made it through the journey of pregnancy. Now your baby is in your arms, and you're on the cusp of a new journey, breastfeeding. As a new parent, you receive a lot of advice, much of it conflicting, some of it outdated. Tune into Born to be Breastfed with host Marie Biancuzo to bust through the myths about feeding your baby. Marie and her guests will help you figure out what you can expect and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. 
Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. are tuned in to Pet Panorama with Dr. Julie Mayer. We want to hear from you with your questions, stories, and comments. Please call into the program today at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Send your emails all week to Dr. Julie at petpanorama at gmail.com. That's petpanorama at gmail.com. Now, back to Pet Panorama. All right. Welcome back. So we're going to continue on just uh, quickly talking about the half-dose vaccine pilot study that Dr. Gene Dodds um, has performed in opening up the eyes and for future um, research on this topic. Um, Her sample size uh, was 13 small breed dogs. Um, the ages between three and nine, they weighed about tw- 12 pounds or less. And again, they did not have vaccine for at least three years. Whole blood sample collected that was sent to Hemopet, that is her laboratory. Um, and they did baseline antibody levels. So this is, you know, prior to giving the vaccine. Veterinarians, admi- veterinarians administered half-dose distemper parvo vaccine. Four weeks post-vaccine, the blood sample was drawn and sent to um, the lab for testing. Then six months post-vaccine, blood sample was drawn and sent um, to the lab for the titer testing. And the conclusions are... The four-week and six-month titer test demonstrated that antibody levels to the canine distemper and parvo virus, viruses, uh, virus disease, had a sustained increase in all of the studies compared to the pre-vaccinated blood sample. As the as the presence of measurable measurable canine distemper and parvo virus serum antibody titers reflect immunity to these viruses, and given that vaccines are known to cause adverse events, especially in smaller dogs, results of this study confirm that receiving a half dose of canine distemper parvo vaccine was efficacious for the study cohort. Further investigations could address a larger number of smaller canines. So again, she's just opening the door to uh, more research. Um, And I actually, um, ironically so, in the recent past, just um, was reading through my emails, 
and I didn't read the whole story, but I read the highline, the highlights. Um, a vet in not in this state, a veterinarian in the United States was reprimanded by the board, so their veterinary board, because um, he or she gave half of the recommended dose. And again, um, there are standards of care, and the board for each state will make those standards of care. So um, doctors can get in trouble for performing these techniques if it's not the standard of care. Just FYI. So let's turn really quickly over to rabies. We're going to talk the rest of the segment on rabies. And and ironically so, too, Dr. Ron Schultz, he's um, a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, the vet school there. Um, he's a awesome immunologist and does a lot of research. Um, and he just sent a letter out um, just this past April, and I'm going to read the letter verbatim. To whom it may concern, since Louis Pasteur developed the first rabies vaccine in 1885, widespread vaccination against rabies virus has dramatically decreased the prevalence of this deadly disease in human and domestic animal populations in developed countries. In the United States, mandatory vaccination of domestic juvenile dogs and cats and vaccination of humans at risk, such as veterinarians and animal control officers, has provided a high level of pop population immunity. Um, I was just sharing with a client today, I was just chatting with her, and she didn't realize that um, all the veterinary students have to get uh, the rabies shots. We had to get three rabies shots. So, so if I'm a little messed up, you guys understand why. Just kidding. But um, yeah, the, we as veterinary students had to get the series of rabies shots. And Dr. Schultz is going to get into this, but we can get titers, right, these blood tests to see if we need another vaccine. Hmm. But we don't do that for pets. So here we go. This is what Dr. Schultz is talking about. Currently, rabies vaccines for non-human animals are tested for efficacy by challenge of immunity tests in small groups of experimental animals. Briefly, vaccinated and unvaccinated control animals are exposed to the rabies virus and protection from disease is compared among the groups. Human rabies vaccines are not tested in this way for obvious reasons. As outlined by the CDC, which is Center of D Disease Control, to determine if vaccinated humans at high risk of rabies exposure are actually protected, antibody titer testing is performed every two years. And this is true. When we go to conferences, we can actually get our blood tested to see if we have titers against the rabies that we were vaccinated for. And if not, we can get the rabies vaccine again. If a certain level an antibody is detected, the person is considered protected against rabies and is not revaccinated. Anecdotal evidence of vaccinated humans maintaining protective antibody against rabies virus for decades after initial vaccine series is common. So here we are in the human world, especially these vets, me included, we're getting these shots when we're in school and 10 years later, our titers still show that we have protected immunity. In the United States, most localities require revaccination of adult pets at yearly or triennial 
intervals, so three years, without regard for the patient's antibody status. Hmm. So we're humans who do have to get the rabies vaccine. We look at their titers to see, do they need the next rabies vaccine? This represents a scientifically flawed approach. And again, these are quotes from our lovely Ron Schultz at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. The main objective of vaccination must be to safely provide protection from disease and should not be done to simply meet administrative requirements or deadlines. Again, because that's not science. Rabies vaccination of pets, while essential to population health, is not without risks. Adverse events such as development of ischemic dermatopathy, which is ulcerating and scarring of skin at the vaccine site and tops of the ears, or death from anaphylactic shock or rapid systemic allergic reaction, have been linked to rabies vaccines administration. Actually, when I was a freshman getting the vaccines, um, one of my classmates did have a reaction and it wasn't pretty. While these events are uncommon for those animals that are already protected via antibody against rabies as determined by an antibody titer test, the risk of these adverse events is unwarranted. Canine studies funded by the Rabies Challenge Fund, and that's uh, Dr. Gene Dodds is spearheading that, and performed in collaboration with the University of Georgia, have confirmed that dogs that have a detectable rabies antibody titer are resistant to disease caused by experimental challenge with virulent rabies virus for as long as seven years. Seven years. And after two doses of rabies, two doses of the rabies vaccine. Rabies antibody titer testing is cost-effective and is readily available from several veterinary diagnostic laboratories in the U.S. For example, Kansas State Veterinary Diagnostic Laboratory offers a test for approximately $40. A scientifically sound approach to rabies revaccination in adult pets would be the first to determine antibody status and risk of infection and only then administer the booster vaccination if needed right, as is the standard of care for those human beings who also require protection from rabies. So very, very interesting. Again, people are starting to ask questions, look at the culture, is it still right? Now we have more ways of testing things, looking at things, um, different ways of, you know, kinds of vaccines. So it's it's very, very interesting. We do this for the human world, but we do not do this for the animal world. So I don't know what the difference is there, but um, it, it's our culture. I mean, you know, you used to go to the vet every year, you get your vaccines and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I understand, too, Yes, it is a revenue builder. Okay, we have to look at reality. But also, it brings the pets to the veterinarian, right? If there's no purpose other than the pet being sick or hurt, they would not come in on a regular basis and get, you know, uh, preventative care or wellness exams, etc. So I understand that as well. But again, we need to look at science because... 
there are syndromes and, you know, the rabies vaccine is definitely not benign. And I had another personal story to share with you. I actually got to witness what is called rabies miasm. Okay. So you can look this up. It's all over the internet. And there's just a list, a list, a list of side effects of the rabies. Rabies, miasm symptoms, hypersensitivity of all senses, rage, agitation, violence, uh, sudden attacks, unprovoked attacks, irrational fears, um, timid, inappropriate responses to water, obsessive compulsive behaviors, excessive vocal licking, um, sexual drive, sensitivity to close places or tight clothing, collars, sensitivity over reaction to noise, um, spasmodic sneezing, spasms of the jaw, choking, gagging, coughing, reverse sneezing, laryngeal spasms, uh, involuntary urination, constant and war erections, again, this uh, kind of sexual stimulation, excessive licking of genitalia, uh, sensation of flea bites, violent itching, uh, convulsions, especially from the sight of running water and or shiny objects, Interesting. Aimless, wandering, and vocalization. So here's my personal experience. Um, when I was uh, had my wellness center um, in Chicago, um, I two of my cl- clients actually were all three. There were three of us, two clients of mine and myself. We were the founders of Integrative Pet Care, which still coexists. So I'm going to give them a shout out. Hi, Integrative Pet Care. Um, So I basically uh, treated their pets, and one of the founders, her her dog was a uh, a Newfoundland, and I got to raise that uh, puppy as a veterinarian. So I got to treat it from shots to the end of life, and I got to witness uh, firsthand. rabies miasm so this dog was awesome she walked him all over chicago on a leash um friendly went up to everybody she brought this dog to work all the time this dog was so much fun and you know i mean a goofy newfoundland puppy i gave the shot it's time for the shot i gave the rabies shot and literally within about two weeks this dog was so aggressive um, very hard to manage, wanted to attack everybody on the walks when she would walk the streets of Chicago, even across the street, lunging. It was bizarre. I've never seen anything like it. And that was the only thing that we did different was to give this dog the rabies vaccine. So what we do is we're able to use homeopathic remedies to be able to clear, try to detox the dog, try to clear out um, these adverse effects that can happen from these vaccines. So it was very, very amazing. I mean, it was just, it was so sad because you knew that that dog was just going, you know, crazy inside and and was very uncomfortable and very agitated. So it was was very, very amazing. Um, And what else... 
have clients do, because a lot of people ask me, what can I do, you know, to try to prepare my pet for the vaccines? And when they come to me, we talk about um, Thuya, which is a very common homeopathic remedy. Um, we will use that, uh, you know, right before the vaccine and for a few weeks after the vaccine. We'll monitor for any kind of signs um, of rabies miasm or any other vaccines as well. Um, and listen is another homeopathic remedy that we will use to try to clear some of the side effects of these vaccines. But there's a lot of different protocols and a lot of books out there, these homeopathic um, or just holistic veterinarians have a lot of ways with uh, herbal remedies and definitely with homeopathic remedies to try to help, you know, counteract some of these side effects that you pet owners may experience um, with your pet. So, you know, veterinary medicine is great, um, and we're here for a reason, and we just want to make your pets better and, you know, keep that relationship as long as we can. But unfortunately, with some of the pharmaceuticals that we do use, we're going to, ha- just like in the human world, we're going to have side effects and such. And we try to keep them healthy as long as we can and use the tools that we have, and so everybody Try to seek out your holistic veterinarians and give them a lot of love and opportunity to help your pets out. So um, thank you very much. It's been wonderful. This is the end of our pilot series. So we're going to see what happens in the future. Have a great weekend. Bye, everybody. Thank you for being a part of Pet Panorama this week. Be sure to join Dr. Julie Mayer for another edition next Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time and 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Now, enjoy the weekend with your best friend.